Hi friends, welcome to Why We Care. I'm your host Fen and I started this podcast because I realized that most people know how to reduce their carbon footprints, but few know how to directly help protect nature and biodiversity. So together we'll explore our relationship with the natural world and learn how we can take better care of Mother Earth in our everyday lives. In this week's episode, I'm chatting with Anne Brummer, a wildlife rescuer and CEO of the Save Me Trust. I first heard about her through Brian May, who you might know as the guitarist of the band Queen. Turns out he's also really interested in animal rights. So much so that in 2009, he joined forces with Anne to set up the Save Me Trust, a non-profit organization on a mission to give wild animals a voice. Anne has been rescuing wildlife for over 30 years and currently runs not only the Save Me Trust, but also Harper Asprey Wildlife Rescue, an emergency wildlife hospital that works 24-7, 365 days a year. We spoke about the situation of wildlife in the UK and the main threats wild animals such as badgers, foxes, deer birds and hedgehogs are facing, including habitat loss, lack of access to freshwater and hunting. She also shared a ton of practical advice on how you can help wildlife, from what to do if you find an injured animal to what you can put in place to support your local wild animals, whether you have a garden or not. I live in a flat in central London, so I don't personally have a green space of my own that I can turn into a little wildlife haven, which kind of breaks my heart. But I will be putting some of her other tips into action and having conversations with people around me who do have gardens, including my dad, who I'll definitely try to convince to make our garden back home more wildlife friendly. I hope you'll find this helpful. Please share this episode around you so we can get as many people as possible to help. And make sure to check out the website of the Save Me Trust, donate if you can, and follow Anne on social media for even more tips and updates. Thank you so much for caring and sending you lots of love. Hi, Anne. Thank you so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Um, could you start by introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about what you do? Yeah, so um, my name's Anne Brammer and I'm Chief Executive of the Save Me Trust. And uh, we basically give wildlife a voice is the you know premise of the things that we do. Um, we like to um, achieve sustainable changes for wildlife to support it. And it's important that we work with businesses and organisations to achieve this. Um, on site here, I also run Harper Asprey Wildlife Rescue. So that's really our motivation for all of this work that we do, because we deal with single animals here and single issues. And um, we spend a lot of time looking after wild animals. So we And we've done so for 30 years, so we understand them really well. Mm-hmm. And that's a really important part of the work we do, is understanding their needs. That's amazing. Um, and one thing that I saw on your website that really struck me is this, um, you said that we talk a lot about, or people talk a lot about the extinction of tigers, for example, which I think have been kind of used as the maybe poster child for biodiversity loss, right? Alongside maybe yeah. pandas or other um, kind of bigger species, but actually, for example, hedgehogs, popula- hedgehog populations are declining at roughly the same rate. And yet it seems that we are much less aware of it. So I was wondering if you could give an overview of the situation for wildlife in the UK um, and maybe how how we got to where we are today and what the main threats are. Yeah. So um, wildlife in the UK, well, the situation is catastrophic. Mm -hmm. Um, 52% of our our wildlife has gone over the last 20 years um, and we're just facing this constant decline. 87% of our freshwater sources have gone and that's, one of the biggest impacts on wildlife changes over the last 50 years, I guess, in lifestyles, in the food that we eat um, has impacted on the planet in far more 
sort of of significant ways that we could have, I don't think we could ever imagine this would happen. It, I mean, it basically is humans. Um, we make no apology for standing up for wildlife. It's kind of what we do. But if you, in 1993, 9% of the planet, sorry, 27% was untouched by humans. And obviously that's places like the Sahara Desert, Gobi and Australian deserts and places that are inhospitable. Now just 9% has been untouched by humans. 200 years ago we had a billion people here now we have like seven billion and another two billion on the way so the pressures on the planet are immense um and unfortunately wildlife comes last in all that and the change in habitats that we're creating everywhere are the single most devastating thing for wildlife so we've got to um sit up and think really we are the most destructive species ever to have walked the earth mm -hmm. and um could you give maybe a bit more details in terms of what are the main species that you rescue with the Save Me Trust and what are the, mo the most common injuries or problems you see? Yes, I suppose with the Trust, we campaign on specific projects relating to um, uh, hedgehogs. We have Project Amazing Grace. We have um, the um, Team Fox, which is all about um, fox hunting and the, the issues that go along with that. And we get very involved in TB with badgers, um, one of our main campaigns. And looking at ways that we can change farming and change, it's always changing big business to accommodate. So at the rescue, we see things on the front line. So the most common animal that we have in the rescue is actually the hedgehog. And that's the one we have the most data on. And that is habitat loss. But everything to do with wildlife is habitat loss. Gardens are changing at just the most incredible rate. You know, the space around us is changing um, and it's not it's too fast for wildlife to adjust. So you're expecting a species to go from somewhere where it's had water, it's had, um, I mean, all species only need three, three things to survive. They need somewhere safe to live where they can breed and feel safe and be protected. They need somewhere where they can get water from and the other is food. And if those three situations occur, you'll have wildlife. And um, we're removing always one of those three we remove water courses at an alarming rate i remember in the 70s they were burying all the ditches underground because it's inconvenient for humans but of course wildlife survives on that so we have all these underground buried ditches and things that we're actually paying the price for now with flooding so i don't to be honest i don't even know where you start there's so many areas that you can work <laughs> in but obviously we focus on wildlife. So the wildlife that we see in now, we take all species, um, it's always dehydrated. I don't think once you get to the summer, there isn't anything that doesn't come in, even just partially dehydrated. We see lots of bones. We see a lot of orphans. We had through COVID an increase in injuries from cats and dogs. And I have a cat and I have a dog, so I'm not, you know, anyway, um, anti them. That became a massive impact because people were using wildlife spaces that were previously safe for wildlife to walk in and um, disturbing them. Wildlife doesn't really get anything from us positively. It really only gets the, the bad side of us. So wildlife's quite happy on its own, so long as we leave its habitat alone and its food sources. Mm -hmm. um, so I suppose the most common injuries will definitely be de dehydration. And then we're seeing a high um, rate of parasites on wildlife, but I think that all is encompassed with dehydration. So, mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, I really love what you're saying, and I've, I've been following Save Me for a while, and I love that you have this approach of, as you're saying, uh, campaigning for a kind of broader uh, societal change, but then also raising awareness at the individual level. 
Yeah. Uh, one of the things I started doing in the summer, thanks to you, <laughs> I saw your post on Instagram about putting little bowls of water um, when we had this really, really massive heat wave here in the UK. Um, so I did that and it yeah, felt great. I, I don't know it's if fantastic. it really helped. But, um, it, yeah, because there's uh, quite yeah. simple things we can do. Mm-hmm. And I think that the main thing is understanding this, um, this change we inflict on our wildlife. We suddenly mm-hmm. take an area and develop it. And um, with developers, it's always been, well, let, at the end of it, we'll put things back. But actually, that wildlife's not going to stay in suspended animation. So we need to look at it before and sustain it through builds and through changes. Even our forestry system is a similar situation where we have changing crops over 80-year spans. So that habitat is going to be devastated in 80 years' time. So all the wildlife that some um, generations that have grown up there will be gone again. We, we just need to rethink the whole process on a massive scale and now mm-hmm. really and mm-hmm. really today <laughs> this would be a good time to do it <laughs> love the love the call to action and and yeah hopefully people can, <laughs> can hear it and and do a bit more um and so i had a few uh questions also uh specifically for what people can do yeah so the first one is what should people do if they see a wild animal that seems to be unwell or injured? I guess there's probably a, proce- a procedure um, that you yeah. should follow, right? Definitely. So if, so if you see a wild animal and you think that it might be unwell or injured, the first thing I'd tell you to do is just step away and think, like mm-hmm. not to go near a wild animal because its reaction will be to flee from you. And mm-hmm. whatever the injury is that it's sustained, you're going to make that worse. So it's not like a human patient where you rush to the patient and then ask questions because there's no questions to be asked here. You really need mm-hmm. to observe. And uh, we quite often have situations where an animal is quite badly injured and they're forced to flee because people come too close to them and they can make that injury worse or they can actually get away and we aren't able to get them anyway. So you can, you know, that will happen with quite severe injury, injuries. I've seen a fox on um, two legs move really fast. You know, they they are terrified of us wildlife. So if they expect us to hurt them in some way, so they're gonna do everything to get away. So first of all, just step away and think. Um, And also sort of assess whether it's strange or is it unusual? Do you actually know that species? Do you know that it's injured and it's not doing something that's normal? Um, and observe from a distance that doesn't affect it. We got used to through COVID using um, social distancing. Well, social distancing from wildlife is the distance you can be away from it without causing it to change its behaviour. And that's a really important thing to just really assess it. So we see a lot of orphans arrive in the rescue that probably did have mum lurking around, but she's never going to make herself obvious to you. She is always going to flee from humans. So, um, you know, it's really important that you um, are aware of that. So if it is, um, if they are injured, if there's obviously blood and different things, there are two things to do. One, if it's a large animal, is to identify exactly where you are, maybe using um, what three words, GPS, you know, lots of people have iPhones now, but actually locate where it is and phone the rescue and find out the advice that they'll give you. There's wildlife rescues all over the country that will help you with advice. If you are able to and you think it's feasible, you can pick it up and put it into Uh, It really needs to be in a dark box that's warm. They don't need any food and water. Um, Ambulances don't arrive with McDonald's. They just (laughs) arrive with fluids and um, various medication and things, but they certainly Mm -hmm. don't arrive with food. So food is nowhere on that list. That animal is not going to die of starvation. That's not its problem. There'll be something else going on. And even if it was in a situation of decline due to lack of food, giving it food won't help it. It needs to be fluids. We need to put fluids into it properly. 
So um, keep it in a dark box. Secondly, it doesn't like you. It, you're not its friend as far as it's concerned. And any interaction with you is stressful. If an animal goes into stress, it again can um, uh, go into a, quite a deep collapse of its entire body. So it's really important that you keep it quiet and away from you. Don't be tempted to do selfies and show your friends. Nobody can do anything with that animal apart from our vet. So you need to get it to a person who can help before, and they probably won't look at it with you. They'll probably take it away somewhere or they should. So it's um, it, it's kind of do as little as possible, but get it to safety. And, um, you know, then it, it can get the proper help that it needs because it, it will need something and it will need something quite severe. And certainly when you've got bleeds and breaks, it's only a vet that can fix that. So that's where it, it needs to be. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. And I think that's uh, super helpful to know because I've been in that situation before and you're right that <laughs> I think one of the instincts is, oh, maybe he's hungry. Maybe she's hungry. Yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> so that's, it's yeah, amazing it's really good point. how many people yeah. put food in with it. Just think ambulance <laughs> doesn't bring McDonald's yeah. really good food and keep it <laughs> like quiet point. and warm and safe, which is really mm -hmm. what an ambulance does. It just keeps it safe. Yeah. Obviously, they do administer fluids. But get it get it straight to that person that can actually help it, mm -hmm. and that gives it its best chance of survival. There are many species that go into shock so quickly that that time period is really important. So, mm -hmm. um, and and to be you know, a lot of our animals come in from the general public. So without you guys out there helping, we wouldn't save as many animals. So that your our, our eyes really in unique situations. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's that's good to know. And then how do you? How it, where, where is the best way to find the closest rescue? Is would you recommend? Google I think it's, there, there are like a... there's various um apps and um various um uh websites that help you. But I think if you put um wildlife rescue and nearest to you, Google does it for you, and mm, they give you okay. several ones. And a lot of them are species related. So I think if I if I'd found a fox, I would put fox rescue in wherever you are, so long as you mm -hmm. know that, and it'll come up. Um, the RSPCA are obviously national. They're very much under pressure with the amount of inspectors they have. And um, and they bring animals to us too. They rely on a, a lot of the other rescues too. But you mm -hmm. also have your local vet. The vet. A vet will treat wildlife free. Um, a lot of things I hear from people is that they say, oh, I'm not taking it to the vets because they'll put it down. Well, please God, that isn't the first reaction for any vet. It would be mm -hmm. to help them. But sometimes wildlife injuries are so severe that it would be unethical and inhumane to try and bring them through that process. So each animal is individual and you have to assess that. And I guess a vet that doesn't deal with them all the day would all day would have less um, experience in that field. So it, it was always best to get to wildlife rescue, but if not, your nearest vet is a good um, a good call. Yeah. Okay. So wildlife rescue first, if not available, then maybe uh, a vet could help yeah. potentially. Okay. Amazing. Um, and then in terms of what can be put in place to help wildlife, do you have any, or I think I saw a few tips already on your website, but it would be great if you could share the main things people can do for, first of all, for those of us who have a garden. Uh, gardens are amazing. If we joined up all the gardens in the UK, it would just be the most amazing wildlife reserve. So um, water, water is mm -hmm. essential for all life. And whether you put out a bowl and, you know, keep topping that up or you dig really simple ponds, you know, just just dig a little bit of a hole in your garden, fill it with um, a liner and fill it up with gravel and some water. 
put some pond plants in there that will keep it healthy. But water, really, everything needs water. If you don't have water, you know, we're in a desert and there's very few things that survive there. And with the, the changes that are going on in the country at the moment with our climate change, that's becoming more and more prevalent. So water is definitely the first thing to have there. If you have a garden, mulch it, use mulch to keep the soil damp. It's great for climate change. And it also is the place where all the little insects live that all the next species up the food chain eat on. So insects, I know people often want to use pesticides, don't ever use pesticides. Pesticides are never specific to hosts. They get into the food chain. They're often found in um, body organs within the body and they can suppress the immune system. So pesticides are never a good idea. Mm -hmm. There are lots of natural things. I know that um, uh, coriander um, stops the carrot fly attacking your carrots. And if you go back to old vegetable recipes like carrots and coriander, they kind of were designed that way. Old gardeners used to know what to plant together. So I think mm -hmm. I think we need to look at more natural things, not feel stressed that um, a caterpillar has been chewing your food if you grow any food in your garden, like just take that leaf off and eat the next bit. I think people have got too sanitized from uh, wildlife. But mm -hmm. um, so we've got water in the garden, mulch to keep um, humidity in and any cover of shrubs and things you can put in there. And also thinking native plants, always grow native plants because that's what our native wildlife needs. And um, people say hedgehogs aren't vegetarians. However, the insects that they eat are, and the insects, it's that insect population that keeps that hedgehog healthy. That's what we, we really need to see in gardens. So healthy gardens um, are the most important thing. So make your space water, mulch it, and some cover greens and then you're kind of there really grow the plants that the animals need is what i would do mm -hmm. okay amazing that sounds very exciting if i had a garden i would definitely <laughs> make sure it was a little <laughs> friendly space for wildlife <laughs> um but then that, that actually leads me to my uh, next question which is what about those of us who don't have a garden what can we do and i think um for me, an, an example is I live in central London and we have a lot of foxes um, in, the suite, in the streets, which every time I see one, it brings me joy because I'm like, oh, fox. But then also <laughs> it makes me sad because I'm, I'm surely that's not a really nice place for a fox to live. And it would be probably better if it, you know, was in a forest. Um, and then I have this instinct of I want to help them, but then I don't really know what to do. So are there things you can do? Before yeah, foxes, so but then also other wildlife. Yeah. So, well, central London, you've got three, like, three million, three and a quarter million gardens in the mm -hmm. capital. And if those gardens could, um, you know, have water, be mulched and have cover for wildlife, then that would be pretty amazing. So we're kind of dependent on the spaces that are already there. So mm -hmm. um, anyone who's got a garden in London, please, like, think of wildlife has got to be, you know, the most important thing. And that creates um, spaces for wildlife to go through. And as you so rightly said, foxes are quite common in the capital. They are very clever animals, probably the most clever canid that ever walked the earth. And they've adapted to so many environments. They are a little bit of a marmite species. I think people either love them or hate them. Mm -hmm. I absolutely <laughs> love them. And I think every time I see one, I think, wow, you've survived here. And, you know, you look pretty healthy and you're still surviving. So getting healthy food in London is not as easy for a fox because they tend to get lots of takeaways that people drop around and food so mm -hmm. that affects their skin condition and can lead to other ailments but in general they are amazing ratters and they're very good at keeping the rodent population down we see a lot of wildlife in london living on um embankments in they, they travel down the railways 
because they know that that's a safe place for them to go along and in isolated pockets. But I mean, you've got peregrines there, you've got skylarks in London, you have some amazing species there. So it is looking after the wild spaces that are there and um, just keeping an eye on them so they don't disappear and trying Mm -hmm. to explain to those that are in power and certainly um, the councils and and the mayor that how valuable these wild spaces are, these green spaces for especially your fox. It is possible to feed them. Mm-hmm. So the downside with feeding wildlife is that um, and we, we do see this quite a lot. People feed consistently and the wildlife population becomes dependent on them and then they move for whatever reason. So it really needs to be responsible if you're going to do anything. So do things occasionally. So you're occasionally helping the wildlife as opposed to making them dependent on you. And if there is a way that you've got access to green spaces to um you know, try and support the planting there. There are lots of projects in London, uh, um, tree planting and situations that go on, and they're really worth joining because it, that is the only way wildlife's going to survive there is with these environments that exist. And as I said, in people's um, own gardens as well. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's really interesting. And then it's, yeah, it's making me think about, yeah, maybe campaigning with my I don't know local council or even even just the building I I live in a flat but maybe I could send an email to the building manager see if we can optimize the little green space that we had yeah because it doesn't doesn't matter how Mm. small it is wildlife will find it but Mm -hmm. it's um it's keeping that that constant and thinking always a balance when we talk to people about their green spaces especially larger companies is they're Mm -hmm. always looking at the humans so if you look at the wildlife that that you have there and that you want to um you know look after and support put a trap camera out borrow a trap camera see what wildlife you have around there and then look at their needs and then join them with the humans like it does work you can do you know there's so many amazing things that you can do in your garden that mm-hmm. it can be there for both of you they they need some basic things and obviously humans do too but you can definitely join them together you can build some really amazing seats that might be houses in the in the evening or shelters or you know it's just really thinking that process through mm-hmm. oh I, I love that I love this idea of um cohabiting a bit more with them and, and yeah. yeah finding that's, things that's what that we that need that... to do yeah. If we want, mm-hmm. if we want um, wildlife to survive, and please, you know, please God, we do, and people are going to um, mm-hmm. look after it for a long, long time. We have to integrate; that we cannot be separate. It has to be part of our lives, and um, I think most people want that. We all love seeing wildlife; it's good for our soul and so many things. We just need to help it a lot more. We, I think, we've taken it too much for granted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, that's super interesting. What you're saying about the fact that we've taken wildlife for granted I had another conversation um as part of this podcast also about our relationship with um it was with whales specifically and how um noise pollution in the oceans and how in a way it makes me sad to realize that we've had such an impact and we've taken up so much space and as you said as you said we've destroyed so much of um the habitat that uh, wildlife depends on but it's also now we're there and it's unrealistic obviously we're not gonna you know destroy all of our cities yeah. or it, it, so we have to i guess find a new balance and, and just live in harmony and, and try yeah. to re-establish a little bit of a better balance right definitely and certainly when you get to the oceans it's waste mm-hmm. it's our waste we've for years and years just used it as a dumping ground 
and you see the amount of plastic that goes in there and then you see the places that it turns up in it's heartbreaking and for um you know sea animals that that is where we were probably it's become evident i think in the last few years and people are taking a lot more notice but we really have to look at what we're doing with our rubbish and um you know rethink the whole process i think it's frightening in this day and age that we're still producing plastic we know how dangerous it is we know how devastating it is and one use plastic just shouldn't be out there anywhere and it, we should be looking at all these biodegradable alternatives i think it's mm -hmm. really shocking that we're still putting that back into the environment yeah yeah i agree that's a really good point um i have another question specifically uh following up on what you said before What about birds? Is it a good idea to feed birds? Because I remember when I was a kid, my mom had this little bird feeder and it was very cute. <laughs> the, birds from the, so it, the same thing occurs that they become dependent on you. Mm -hmm. But there yeah. are, depending what species of birds you are feeding. So house sparrows used to be the most common in London because they mm -hmm. basically live in a house and all they need is a hedge, which has got mm -hmm. lots of insects and things in there. So it, it, it is in the short term, feed them, but in the long term, look at ways to support them. And if you're in um, a building that is interested in putting some green spaces in, then that can progress to the long term supporting of them where they're not dependent on people that are there because they don't, they don't need an awful lot, especially when you get to some of the smaller birds. There's not a lot they need. They just need to be able to, um, you know, shelter in the hot weather, get water and get food. So I would say do both. Like if you're going to feed, look at the long term solutions as well. So that mm -hmm. if, if you decide to move or something changes, then they have something there that's permanent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. And is it also tied with seasons? Because I, I remember one yes. thing my mom did was she, she used to yeah, feed the so, birds only in well, the winter. Yeah, so in, in London, you're quite fortunate because it, it never gets as cold in London or in yeah. theory it doesn't. So mm -hmm. you're protected a little bit. And a lot of the buildings actually help birds to be protected. But in um, in a woodland, they would be deep in a wood and they would know various places to um, hide and to be safe. So with London's changing landscape, that's not always as easy. So, again, it's these we re they really are being confined to these green spaces that we've got. So we should be creating more. And I'm um, certainly like the, the vertical buildings where people are planting up the side of the buildings and things. They're great places for lots of birds to hide from. And you can grow the food that they need as well. So hedges and you're looking at kind of a lot of vertical structures really in London for it to be long, to, you know, to survive long term. But definitely plants along the side of buildings and close to them will help them through all the different seasons. And the plants need to produce fruit to help them again. You know, there's great... Um, So there's a great plant called pyracantha that um, you can grow straight up the side of your building. It's very prickly. It has fantastic berries, but the prickliness keeps the bird safe inside it. But a lot of um, uh, humans, and uh, certainly when they're um, buildings where there's lots of public through, they don't like them there because they don't want the people to get pricked on them. But, you know, we just need to get used to things and not be mm -hmm. like, go back to looking after wildlife. I'm sure there's ways to, for them both to be there make things wildlife friendly and human friendly, but wildlife first. Yeah, you're right. And that's what you were saying before, right? I think we've gotten so used to being in our closed spaces that are all clean, but actually it's not, it's not no. pretty, right? Like even like insects. Yeah. And, and you can have both. Nature. You can have a beautiful yeah. garden that's wildlife friendly and human friendly. Mm -hmm. So yeah. there's kind of, there's so many things out there now that you can do within your space. And mm -hmm. certainly we'd help anyone that was interested in doing, doing things, especially on a larger scale in, um, you know, communal areas, because there's just the most amazing ways to help both. Mm -hmm. Okay. Amazing. That's good to know. 
Um, on a more, pers more personal note, I wanted to ask um, if you have a favorite wildlife rescue story. And I imagine you probably have <laughs> hundreds. <but laughs> is there well, one you wanted so, to share? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so the, so every year there's a, a a particular animal that touches your heart. And over mm -hmm. the years, it's been I've had an adder, um, a, a pigeon, and um, deer, and various species that, for whatever reason, that year they've kind of like attached to you more than anyone else. And uh, this year's for me was a badger cub called Edith, who had been um, badger baited, so she's been quite badly damaged as a little cub. And we had to keep her isolated in the early part of her life because her injuries were so severe that they, they wouldn't have mended if she'd been with siblings. She was very grumpy. I've got a few scars to show it. And um, <laughs> we went through a um, process where we, in the end, vaguely tolerated each other. Um, I spent a lot of hours with her through the night. And she, about two months ago, has just gone out. So, um, oh, wow. and all that, you know, the hours of looking after them just goes out the window because this um, amazing animal is out there. Um, she'll, I'm sure she'll have cubs next year and hopefully she'll um, stay around here so we can keep an eye on them as well. Oh, wow. That's that's such a beautiful Edith, story. It is. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, that actually I was going to say, so when you say she's gone out, you've released her into the wild, right? Yeah, she's gone. And she get, All our animals go out through soft release. So mm -hmm. they go into a um, area that's suitable for them where they can you know, behave normally. So in the case of badgers, it, um, the, the run that they're in goes underground about three meters so they mm -hmm. can dig their own set. Once they're safe, um, in the case of badgers underground and in their little group, then we open a hole in the cage and they go in and out. So we have, mm -hmm. um, we monitor them for quite a while. They're still around here now. They don't go back in the cages so much now. A couple of them do, but I quite often when I come back late at night, I see their little bottoms bouncing up the road in front of me they kind of like they catch the car light and then they go up the hill to where we are it's quite funny okay oh wow so so you, you have this um soft release you call right where you yes. manage to keep an eye on them a little bit and, and make sure yeah. that they're uh, adapting it's a transition to... between the yeah between the basics so we start off with the the rehab like looking after them first of all they looked after medically but mm -hmm. um, prior to, at that time, we always have like a meeting to decide the future and and how we're going to progress them and how we're going to rehabilitate them, looking at the injuries and how long we have to have them in for. And then the last process, if they don't go home, because a lot most adults will go back to their environment. If they're not going home, we have a soft release program. And in there, they are in a safe environment that they slowly venture out in the same as they would in the wild they get to know all the locals that are around them, which are other foxes mm -hmm. and badgers in the case of those and deer. And then eventually they are released through a, a it's a gate in the enclosure and they're able to come back and forward. So they have food and they're still protected in their home. And eventually they integrate into the wider population. So we do quite often see some of them back, which is nice. Mm -hmm. Oh, I can imagine. I imagine yeah. it must be nice to, to see them. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. <laughs> Another question I had was, um, I think these topics can be quite difficult and, and sad to deal with, especially being exposed to and thinking about all the suffering we are creating for, for these animals. So I wanted to ask, how do you manage to stay positive and where do you find hope? Oh, do you know, I don't think you do. You get really uh -huh. frustrated, sometimes angry. It's really painful. And um, we definitely cry a lot here. Waterproof oh. mascara is essential. Um, <laughs> it is really, it is really sad. But mm -hmm. I don't I don't know. Sometimes I wonder what's wrong with us. 
we don't know a way to stop doing it. We have, I'm surrounded by people who are the same as me. Um, my head vet, exactly the same. We don't know why we put ourselves through this pain, but mm-hmm. but we do. But when you, um, you have all these skills there to look after a wild animal and to get it back and fit and well, but when you release it, when you give it that second chance and it's fit and it's grown and it's able to look after itself, there is there is nothing that you can um that else that gives you that buzz that feeling of just wow that magnificent creature is going back out there. I don't think anyone that's here doesn't get excited over whatever comes in. There's never we're not speciesists. There's no there's none that we prefer. Just amazing that this wild animal is out there living against the odds and our I don't know it's in our being to help it and to get it back there and and you know make it survive it's even weirder when you think you get no thanks for it that every opportunity they're trying to escape from you if you <laughs> if you get too close and they'll probably bite you in many cages okay mm-hmm. many occasions and they certainly don't do there's just no thanks but I don't know what else you do really it's it's I guess that release thing wipes out all the, the hours and the pain and then you just think I'll do that again now Mm-hmm. Wow, that's that's really beautiful. And I think, well, you do such amazing work and it's so important and it's so needed. So I think even if you don't get uh, thanks directly from the animals, I'm sure <laughs> somehow on, on an energy level or something, the universe is probably thanking you. And, and uh, I, I know so. for me, I'm very grateful for all the work you do. Because sometimes we have, um, sometimes when they first go out, if it's a, a release back into their environment, they'll go far enough away from us to be safe. And then they often look back now they're probably looking back to make sure they're safe and they can carry on. <laughs> we like to think that's the thanks. Uh-huh. <laughs> but I'm not so sure it is. <laughs> a second of <laughs> Yeah, one second. Back. It's as good as it gets. Oh, well, but but yeah, that, that's, I guess it opens up quite a philosophical question. But, yeah. um, you know, surely on some level, they kind of um, probably realize that you're helping and then what? I think, no. I think they do. Um, I definitely think they understand a lot more. So you mm-hmm. have um, a lot of the people that work here will do things with um, some of the larger species like foxes and badgers. You can do quite a lot of treatment with them without sedating them and without, they seem to get it. They just mm-hmm. get it. I think at some point they realize that this is not, um, you know, this is not painful. This is a way to get get through. So I do, I do think some of them get it. Mm-hmm. And you do, I mean, some of them just get really attached to you. You just seem to be able to see into their soul and um, they become quite attached to you. They're all very unique. I think very much like humans. People always, you know, sort of put species together, but actually everyone is an individual, incredibly individual and does, um, they might have some traits that run through the um, species, but they are really, really individual. And um, I don't know what it is. I'm addicted. And certainly all the people I work with are addicted too. <laughs> um, can't help ourselves. But red foxes black and white badgers you know um i don't know squirrels that run up and down trees and are able to turn their feet back to front when they come down the trees and just all these animals out there in the wild i mean that's really impressive stuff isn't it we have the best wildlife on the planet here in the uk Mm -hmm. and uh, we should appreciate it it's just awesome yeah yeah i love that and it really resonates with me I, i feel it too which um yeah, I, I think it, just the joy you feel whenever you, you know, spot even, yeah, a squirrel. You're like, oh, a squirrel. And I think it's this very kind of childlike joy that it bring, brings you. Yeah. Which I was thinking is also 
I don't know about you, but I grew up watching um, a lot of uh, Disney and I was watching Bambi the other day. And it's just, you know, we're taught from a very young age to be so uh, appreciative and, and you yeah. know, that these animals <laughs> are very friendly and we should care for them. And so I think that's, yeah, it's probably also quite um Yeah, it's kind of negative, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they, yeah. they are. I think sometimes we don't, we don't, um, we don't realize how amazing they are to be doing the things that they're doing and mm-hmm. to be out there. Yeah, just I could watch them for hours. It's anything, you know, sometimes you get like a glimpse of something. You think, what was that? And it's something unusual in your garden. Just the whole thing. I just think that nature's just incredible, isn't it? A snake, an animal, how can that move? It's got no legs. It's got <laughs> and it survives out there. And you think, yeah. wow, just the whole thing is just everything's amazing. Whoever made all these creatures is just really wacky and genius all in one. It's just mm-hmm. amazing, beautiful animals to watch. And we should be very grateful hopefully more people I think during COVID a lot of people saw more animals and we would get a lot of calls from people saying I found this in my garden and I said well, is it normally there so I don't know I've never looked before I've mm. always been at work so I think um, <laughs> people became a bit more appreciative and sometimes alarmed but it's good wildlife's really good mm-hmm. I, I love that and yeah hopefully people can reconnect to nature a bit more yeah and just do do more things I spent my whole childhood with wildlife probably doing the wrong things probably catching them and um watching them and um different things so now it's probably payback time but there isn't anything that, um I just love them all I think like probably mm-hmm. as a child just probably a little bit too much but just found them fascinating you kind of knew where they lived and areas that I could find them in and I just loved it mm-hmm. we should get rid of yeah. all our xboxes and get children out there <laughs> Get children to look for squirrels and snakes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Get them that. So that's your first introduction, isn't it? Having them in your garden yeah. with you. Mm-hmm. I love that. <laughs> um, so the final thing I wanted to ask is, uh, who do you think I should interview next on this podcast? And um, what's the best book you ever read and why? Uh-huh. People to interview. So who? I think it's everyone that's to do with green innovations. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um Dale Evans from um, Ecotricity, he's put up a whole industry of green energy and something that I don't understand why the government aren't doing more to uh, encourage that, why we're still having, we've got a coal mine, I think, that's opening up and we've got, um, you know, we're still taking North Sea oil. Why are we not looking at ways to be off the grid, the same as Dale does? And I think he would be really interesting He's had a, a got a wealth of knowledge and got an incredibly successful company built on green energy. So I think that he would be um, somebody who I'd be interested to see what he thought of our future. And I guess it's really hard, isn't it, to find. I love organisations that are actually doing things. There's a lot of awareness raised and there is a need for that. And it's fantastic. But I like to get to the sort of the bottom of things and find people that are actually doing something that's successful and works mm-hmm. and what happens with that. So I suppose... It would be the green energy. I I listened to somebody this morning on the radio and I wish I caught his name. And they've invented or they, they're using seaweed plastic that is biodegradable in six weeks. And they've been using it on um, packaging. Apparently Just Eat are using it to line some of their cardboard boxes. And I thought, what that's a game changer, isn't it, for all of us to have um, plastics. So you should look that person up and find out <laughs> what that is. That is that definitely going to change things. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you. Yeah, I've actually had my, uh, I've started a conversation with someone uh, who works with the, the seaweed based uh, plastics, I think. So hopefully that. Oh, so that'll be, that'll be the same people. Yeah, just incredible Maybe. stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're things, if we can get rid of, because we've got two things, we've got to clear up the mess we've made, but we've got to stop making more. And that's probably mm-hmm. 
the most crucial thing is to stop, keep generating the same stuff. So something like that. I was just so excited listening to him and now I've forgotten his name, but it was um, <laughs> just the first time. We've looked for ages for biodegradable plastic, but it never is quite as it seems. It doesn't mm-hmm. really, it, the number of years that it remains in the environment are still hundreds and hundreds of years. So something like that would be game changer, I think. Amazing. Thank you. And then what's the best book you ever read and why? You know, it's really weird, isn't it? So my favorite book when I was a child was a, a, a book about a tortoise called Shellover, who uh-huh. um, you, I think some of the other animals in the garden, it was all about animals in the garden, would bury him to get rid of him because he was annoying. But of course, he was quite happy underground because he would do the same <laughs> to himself in the winter. And I remember reading that. I think all the books I've read more recently are never really, I've never... I never find them very exciting. Maybe I've read the wrong books, but all my childhood <laughs> books I loved, but they were all about animals. <laughs> so I don't, suggest, I, love that. I, I don't suggest you want to go back as far as that and read those <laughs> books, but they were all, um, all my books were animal books always. Mm-hmm. Amazing. I love that. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you so much uh, for, for sharing all of that. I think it's a, it's going to be a super helpful episode for a lot of people to understand really how they can help wildlife and, and what changes they can put in place both in their own gardens and then um yeah just also i think what starting conversations right and getting more people yeah. to getting people to think yeah. is probably the mm. most important thing isn't it it's the first the first step the more people think um the more they can do and i and i don't think it doesn't take a lot of thinking to change your space to be wildlife friendly so um just takes a little bit and i think if people more people did that wildlife would be a lot better off and i think we would too we're a species at the end of the day. So if we're destroying our wildlife, we're on that list too. We mustn't forget that. Yeah, that's a very good point. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Anne. Uh, it's really nice to meet you. And well done for doing all these too. things and speaking to people and raising awareness. It's fantastic. Thank and you you're so very much. good. You're very good at interviewing. I'm, I'm oh, not thank you. that sort of thing. <laughs> you are. No, it was, it was a great conversation. <laughs> great. Well, enjoy the rest of your day and thank you so much. And you. okay thank you so much thank you bye thank you listeners i hope you enjoyed the conversation don't forget to share this episode with a few friends or family members so we can get as many people as possible to help wildlife please also check out the website of the save me trust donate if you can and follow Anne on social media for even more tips from her and updates if you want to help the podcast i would also be super grateful if you could leave a little review or maybe share it with a friend who you think might like it you can also follow the podcast on instagram i'll leave all the links in the show notes for um even more updates and ways for you to take action thank you so so much in advance and see you next week thank you for caring and sending you lots of love